Now, Edward R. Murrow and the voices of Thomas E. Dewey, Arthur Vandenberg, Herbert Hoover, Dwight D. Eisenhower, John Foster Dulles, Sam Rayburn, Joseph Martin, Walter Winchell, Charles Wilson, Warren Austin, Wayne Morse, the cab drivers of New York, the new Congress of the United States, and more than 40 other men and women in the news. In the fourth performance of Hear It Now, a full hour report on the week's news presented tonight and every week at this time. Capitol, Congressman Vincent of Georgia. The lines are busy. Will you wait a moment, please? Capitol, Senator Tidings. I'm sorry, we don't have an office for Senator Tidings. Excuse me. Great pleasure to present to you, your speaker, and my speaker, the Honorable Samuel Rabin of Texas. You haven't got to worry about being hit by the enemy, killed by some bullet or some little person about four feet, five inches, come running around a bayonet through you while you sleep. Hear it now. The Columbia Broadcasting System and 173 affiliated radio stations present a document for ear based on the week's news and the men and women who made it. All the voices and sounds you will hear are real. They are presented as they were spoken in the heat and confusion of a world in crisis. It is broadcast in the hope that the collection of these scraps of sound into a weekly recorded history may add another dimension to our understanding in the difficult days ahead. Here is the editor of Hear It Now, the distinguished reporter and news analyst, Edward R. Murrow. It was the first week of the second half of the 20th century, and things might never be the same. But the new year came in with the same sounds and excitement as every other year since the advent of radio. Hear it? Those are the last fading moments of 1950. The clock is steadily counting them out. Ten seconds. Five seconds. Happy New Year, everybody! The New Year came in with a kind of brash bravado for a year of such gloomy prospects. But America gave it the full processing, from the horns to the $50 cover charge to the weird paper hats. At midnight, most people yelled. A few people prayed. And the bulletin that the Red Offensive in Korea had started had a tough time competing with Auld Lang Syne and the Samba. In Washington, the hotels and nightclubs buzzed with the excitement of the new year and the new Congress. Many of the new senators and representatives were already there. On New Year's Day, still more arrived. And on Tuesday, the big hotels, the Wardman Park, the Statler, the Willard, and all the rest were jammed. As every hour on the hour, the long trains and double section of planes unloaded their cargo of congressmen, their secretaries, their wives, and their lobbyists. The vice president's office. Thank you. Speaker Rayburn. The line is busy. Will you hold, please? Senator Wary. Immediately... They started using Washington's most overworked utility, the telephone. 
Congressman Vincent of Georgia. The lines are busy. Will you wait a moment, please? Capital. Senator McMahon. That's busy. Will you wait? Capital. Senator Tidings. Uh, Senator Tidings is not in this Congress. Would you want the member to that succeeds him? Capital. Senator Pepper's office. I'm sorry, we do not have an office for him now. Tuesday was the last day of the 81st Congress. The last hours on Capitol Hill for Millard Tidings, Claude Pepper, Albert Thomas, Forrest Donnell, and Scott Lucas. They quietly packed their desk sets, gently loaded into packing boxes, signed photographs of Harry Truman, FDR, Alvin Barkley, and John Nance Garner. And they said their goodbyes to the telephone operators and the elevator operators and were gone. Senate Majority Leader Scott Lucas, whose defeat in Illinois was one of Harry Truman's most crippling reverses, went to the Senate floor on Tuesday and made this brief farewell. Mr. President, the most interesting and fruitful period of my life will be concluded on tomorrow. For 12 years, I've had the high honor of representing the state of Illinois in the foremost legislative hall in all the world. Tomorrow, I relinquish that trust. I return it to the people. They are the government. They give, they take away. May such a cherished and fundamental right remain inviolate forever. If so, this republic will approach immortality. I plead in this hour, in this desperate hour of our existence, that politics stop at the water's edge, both in the executive and the legislative branches of our government. Give us clear thinking, cool heads, high purpose, firm resolve, unselfish cooperation in these uncertain days ahead. Representatives-elect of the 82nd Congress, this is the day fixed by the Constitution of the United States for the meeting of the 82nd Congress. Certificates of election covering 434 seats in the 82nd Congress have been received and are now on file with the Clerk of the House of Representatives. Members will please answer to their names to determine the presence of a quorum. The state of Alabama. Frank W. Boykin. Yeah. Present, George M. Grant. Yeah. Present, George On Wednesday, M. the 82nd Congress President convened in its newly decorated Dave chambers. Roberts. The Senate, under the seasoned Kevin gavel Dave of Alvin Barkley, selecting Ernest McFarlane of Arizona Dave. as the new majority Dave. leader. The Republicans re-elected Kenneth Wary of Nebraska to run their show under the watchful eye of Ohio's Bob Taft. In the House, 434 representatives took the oath of office and went through the motions of officially deciding whether Sam Rayburn, Democrat, or Joe Martin, Republican, would be the Speaker. In keeping with the Democratic majority in the House, registered last November, Mr. Rayburn won by the predicted majority. And the defeated candidate, Representative Joseph Martin of Massachusetts, made the customary gesture. Ladies and gentlemen and my colleagues of the House, it's a privilege for me to hold this exalted position, even if it is only for a few moments. <laughs> that 
is one of the compensations of a being a defeated candidate. <laughs> they always let him come up and introduce the uh, successor. I uh, will admit that several months ago I had ideas. <laughs> perhaps I might, I might occupy this position a little longer than I'm going to today. But the uh, people of the country and you have ordained otherwise. And so it is a very happy privilege that I have this morning. Ten years ago, members of this House elected a speaker. He has served with one interruption, which I'm very happy to narrate at this time, too. <laughs> Ever since, and has been re-elected for a sixth term. On January 30th of this year, he will have served as Speaker of the House longer than any other man in American history. And so, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to present to you your Speaker and my Speaker, the Honorable Samuel Rabin of Texas. Only Henry Clay had sat in that Speaker's chair longer than Sam Rabin. And in three weeks, even Mr. Clay's record will have been broken. Sam Rayburn had held the gavel that wrapped for order the day after Pearl Harbor when war was declared. He had presided over much of the history of the last ten years. And he asked his colleagues for unity in the new crisis. As Mr. Martin suggested, we live in troubled days. In my deliberate opinion, looking around the earth, Everyone now living in any democracy where freedom and liberty still exist live in the most dangerous time that they ever lived in or that anyone ever lived in since the foundation of this republic. So it behooves us to lay aside little differences, lay aside as much criticism, all criticism that is not constructive, that is not helpful, and all of us join and pledge ourselves that this the greatest the freest and the finest government that ever existed upon the face of the earth shall be strong enough to maintain its liberty and its security. Less than four hours after the House installed its new speaker, it dealt Mr. Rayburn's friend and chief, Harry Truman, his first defeat of the new season. A coalition of Southern Democrats and Republicans combined to give back to the powerful Rules Committee its power to prevent any fair deal legislation from coming to the floor for debate. The vote was 244 to 179. Senator Taft severely criticized the president for not making his State of the Union speech at the opening of the new Congress. Mr. Truman would speak Monday. But even before his speech, it was a foregone conclusion that the major debates and the constant controversy that would rage for the next two years in Washington would be on foreign policy. Senator Everett McKinley Dirksen who had beaten Scott Lucas in Illinois on the issue of the administration handling of foreign policy, was one of the first to begin the attack. 
Senator Dirksen. Now, we in Illinois, I think, can be called the original re-examinists, as Mr. Atchison calls it. We call for a realistic examination of all the foreign aid programs. How much of a load can we carry, if we want to put it on the form of a question? How much aid is required? What do we get in return? Have the folks abroad developed some self-reliance and some self-dependence? Are we just feeding socialism over there? And are they willing to stand up in our corner and be counted? Official optimism, you know, sounds a bit stale and fancy diplomatic language. It sounds just a little flat in the presence of young death on the hard earth of a foreign land. And too many households in America know what that means right now. Frankly, we're in trouble. This brave new world that we've talked about doesn't seem so brave just at the moment. And so it's time for hard thinking and for some plain talk, because it's the only way I know that will dispel the fog and demolish some of these bankrupt illusions of ours. Senator Dirksen asks rhetorical questions in order to make his point. His fellow senator from Illinois, Paul Douglas, a Democrat, former college professor and Marine combat veteran, says what he thinks we ought to do. I think we should serve notice to Russia and its satellites that the next move by a Russian satellite will be regarded as a move by Russia itself and that we will then unleash upon Russia all the force which we possess. We have been too tolerant and too forgiving with the Russians. We have treated the invasion by the North Koreans as an isolated act, although it was Russian-directed and Russian-controlled. We have treated the invasion by the Chinese communists as an independent act, although we know it has been directed and aided by Russia. We should go on the principle of three strikes and you're out. Everywhere the cry was for national unity, but there was no unity. One of the big decisions to be made in Washington would be the Republican choice for the highly coveted vacant seat on the Foreign Affairs Committee. One of the candidates for this post was Wayne Morse of Oregon. Obviously, Dirksen did not speak for Senator Morse, who this week said, The great issue that faces the 82nd Congress will be the historic debate on foreign policy. I'm sure it will proceed with the very beginning of the Congress. It is an issue which I think will determine the destiny of America. I think it is an issue that will determine the survival of the Republican Party. An issue as to whether or not we're going to follow the sound foreign policy philosophy of that great giant statesman from Michigan, Arthur Vandenberg, or whether the Republican Party is going to revert to the isolationism of Herbert Hoover. I want to say that it is an issue that is going to determine the survival of America because if we walk out on the moral obligations of the North Atlantic Pact, if we follow the recommendations of Herbert Hoover and accept his false assumption that America can remain secure and hide behind the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, I think in the next few years we will find ourselves engaged in a death struggle with Russia with serious doubts as to whether or not we can win that war alone. Aside from Korea, the biggest question mark in Washington this week was the Republican Party on the foreign policy it will adopt. This will go a long way in determining the future of the GOP, of this nation, and the world. For that reason, later in this program, we shall attempt a brief study of the conflict within the Republican Party in the voices of Hoover, Dewey, Dulles, and others. This week, the office holders were not the only ones who came to Washington. There were also those constituents seeking jobs. 
The offices of the new congressman were lined with old friends and slightly familiar faces who make the endless pilgrimage to Washington in search of jobs, contracts, and the usual variety of special favors. The senator or congressman who forgets today may be reminded in November. This ancient American custom is not limited to the nation's capital. It goes all the way down to the county, where even the sheriff is plagued with as many old friends and favor seekers as the Speaker of the House. Raise your right hand, if you will, Sheriff. I do stolidly swear... Sam Rayburn, for example, was not the only Texan who took an oath of office this week, nor was he the only one with problems. We put our microphone in the office of a newly elected Texas sheriff. ...United States and of this state, and I furthermore solemnly swear that I have not directly or indirectly paid, offered, or promised to pay, contributed, nor promised to contribute any money or valuable thing, or promised any public office or employment as a reward for the giving or withholding a vote at the election at which I was elected. So help you God. I do. We have agreed to forget the sheriff's name and county, but we listened to a few of the people who elected him. January 2nd, 1951. Inauguration Day, deep in the heart of Texas. Glad to see you get in office. Well, I am glad to be in the office. The reason I came in here to see you, besides congratulating you, you know I, you know where I live, out here ten miles oh, yeah. east of town. And there's been a little cattle thieving going on out there, and and I thought it was possible to get a special deputies commission. Maybe I might run up on some of them out there sometimes. You know, you can run up on them out there. I want to congratulate you on being restored as sheriff. Also, here the other night, I went out here and got drunk again. Lost my license. I want to ask one favor of you. I want to to see if I can get you to help me get my license back. I got a job coming up. Need to drive a truck. Can't get the job if I can't get my license back, and I believe you can help. Sheriff, uh, you know me. I live here in the county seat, me and all my folks. Uh, we've been living here a good while, and we want to congratulate you as being our sheriff, and we believe you're going to make the best sheriff he ever had. Now, we don't like to ask no special favors, Sheriff, but uh, my brother's up there in jail, and... Uh, He's charged with being drunk and driving a car while intoxicated. Now, the sheriff, the fact is that he didn't have but two bottles of beer. And the charges reads that he was only driving 70 miles an hour. Now, sheriff, you know, we, our family is good for about 20, 25 votes. And we really did work hard for you. And... If you can possibly, Sheriff, uh, we're going to ask that you turn this boy out because he's got a good job waiting for him, and uh, he hasn't been charged with this but once before. And uh, if you can't turn him out, Sheriff, just charge him with a misdemeanor fine, a drunk charge, say about 4 or $5, and we certainly will appreciate it, Sheriff. Well, I'll do my best. I'll talk to the county attorney and see what I can do for you. The sheriff in Texas and the speaker from Texas would have some difficult days in the weeks ahead. Oh, 
Your ear is tuned to Korea and the fall of a city, to the dissonant sounds of an MP's whistle and sobbing infants. As heavy trucks and tanks thunder across a bridge going south out of Seoul. In a four-hour period on Wednesday, 30,000 refugees crossed that bridge and started the long trek south over the frozen roads. Just one week ago, General Matt Ridgway had established his new line across the Korean peninsula, had told Syngman Rhee he was in Korea to stay, told his troops they were not fighting to save a small muddy village, but to determine whether ultimate war would be fought in the United States or elsewhere. On New Year's Eve, the Red Army's attack. An American major reports. On the night of December 31st, we were occupying positions just a little way south of the 38th parallel. A penetration was made near our left flank, causing the enemy to get into the valley behind the company which was on the outpost position. The United Nations line held for a time and then gave on the eastern sector. Our troops killed a lot of Chinese who were willing to swap men in a war of attrition at the rate of ten of their men to one of ours, moved their mass of men across heavily mined fields, using the fallen as virtual stepping stones to cross over. On Tuesday, the enemy was 11 miles from Seoul. On Wednesday, they were preparing to enter the city as President Rhee departed and most of the city was burned. Flames lashed out in the abandoned city and their crackle could be heard along with the guns of both the advancing troops and the retreating. That's a five-year-old boy beside a bridge, screaming for his parents. During the week, we lost Seoul, Incheon, Kimpo Airfield. Wanju is under attack from three sides. Censorship blankets present positions. During the week, there was the tragedy of defeat and depression and once again exhausted GIs. First he played taps, nice, sweet, and clear on a bugle. Then he started on the drums and whistles. I moved up and looked over the edge and looked like they were coming in company formation. So I hollered for the squad. Couldn't contact any of them. And I heard the Chinese going through the other foxholes. Sound like they're getting a big kick out of going through the equipment. Later, some more come by. They were searching the bodies and they felt I was warm. I played dead, but they felt I was warm. And took me out of the sleeping bag and they searched me and threw me down the road and planted a boot in the back of my head and drowned my face in the road. And then they threw me on the stack of wounded and took a carbine and tried to knock the back of my head in, but I played dead again. He thought I was dead. They went on. I said, God, if it's your will, this Leave me get out of here and have anything else. <laughs> and the casualty lists continued to grow. Here, one of the 40,000 casualties talks to those of us sitting comfortably at home. Let's take an example our poor boys over there in Korea on those tall mountains. Some of them thousands and thousands of feet in the air, cold. They work 24 hours a day, and yet we have citizens in the United States work only 
maybe eight hours a day, and they complain about eight hours a day. That's only one way we can lick our enemies pulling together, because it takes work to fight a war. These boys will kindly appreciate you and America will quit grumbling about your working hours and take it with a smile to help them out and bear and content with those. You sleep in a nice warm bed. Well, those boys, oh, they can't do that. Or they, maybe they have sometimes two or three blankets to throw on the ground. Time to lay down and go to sleep, there's hit. And some that get to sleep, they never wake up. But to take you or you, you haven't got to worry about waking up in the morning from not being hit by the enemy, killed by some bullet or some little person about four feet, five inches, come running and running a bayonet through you while you sleep. The 419th meeting of the first committee will come to order. At our last meeting... At Lake Success, the delegates watched the battle maps and saw the U.N. forces losing their battle. And in the arena of diplomacy, there was defeat and frustration. Sir Benegal Rao of India, who fought the battle for the ceasefire resolution, reported that the Chinese government in Beiping had refused to consider the resolution. ...and wishes to, report, uh, to present its report to the committee. Therefore, I call upon the representative of India. Mr. Chairman, in spite of its best efforts, the group regrets that it has been unable to pursue discussion of a satisfactory ceasefire arrangement. It therefore feels that no recommendation in regard to a ceasefire can usefully be made by it at this time. Mr. Chairman, this completes what the group has to say for the moment. Most of my listeners will probably feel that the report is little more than a record of failure. Well, failure does not mean that the attempt was not worthwhile or that we should not try again if that is humanly possible. At the U.N., Warren Austin watched from afar as his old Senate colleagues convened in Washington. His role at the U.N. was neither a pleasant one nor an easy one. He listened to Soviet delegate Malik's tirade against U.S. imperialism in Korea and then answered him. It is in the face of this uh, new aggression and the atmosphere polluted here this morning by the speech of Mr. Malik that we meet to consult together on what the free world must do next. In the view of my government, aggression must be resisted. There can be no appeasement. If hostilities continue, our troops will fight on in Korea. My government believes, of course, that the position of the United Nations should continue to be one of seeking to achieve its objective in Korea by peaceful means. Accordingly, my government remains ready to engage in discussions with the Chinese communist regime at an appropriate time and in an appropriate forum. Voices filled with anger and frustration at the U.N. The wailing of a child in Korea. Overwhelming odds and the prospect of more defeat in Korea. 
and the fall of the city of Seoul. Once, just a few months ago, the great symbol of United Nations' strength in stopping aggression. Then, MacArthur and Walker's and the G.I.'s victory. Now, burned and gutted. And for the second time, back in communist hands. And we are mindful of a poem titled Fall of the City by the noted American Archibald MacLeish. The sun is yellow with smoke, the town's burning, the war's at the broken bridge. There's nothing in this world worse, empty belly or purse, or the pitiful hunger of children than doing the strong man's will. The city has fallen. are listening to Hear It Now, CBS's weekly document for ear. The program continues immediately after this pause for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is week number one, 1951, on Hear It Now, a 60-minute review of the week's news told in the actual recorded voices of the men and women who made the news. Once again, here is the editor of Hear It Now, Edward R. Murrow. First, a personal note before we continue with the second half of Hear It Now. A few seconds to say our gratitude to those of you who have written and wired us your encouragement and your criticism. This weekly hour of oral journalism was undertaken in the hope and belief that we might make some contribution toward the understanding of the confusing and complex issues that confront the nation. We are merely trying to record and relate the sounds of the week, important and otherwise. We're still experimenting. Introducing, from Detroit, Michigan, he's wearing purple trunks, trimmed in blue... His weight, 210 pounds, one quarter, the brown bomber, Joe Lewis. In Detroit on Wednesday, former champion Joe Lewis took on Freddie Bishore. Less than halfway through the fight, there was a flash of the brown bomber of younger days. Joe snapped up a right uppercut, a left uppercut, and another right uppercut by Lewis. A left hook by Lewis. Bishore grits his teeth and goes in and runs into another... Left hook, that's thrown by Joe. A left hook and a right uppercut. Bishore's mouthpiece is out. He's in trouble. His face is a crimson smear. Joe lands a right uppercut. Misses a right uppercut. A right hand to the body by Joe Lewis. Another right to the body by Joe Lewis. And the crowd goes wild. And Bishore's face is absolutely a gory mess. Lewis won by a technical knockout in the fourth round. And in Portland, Oregon on Tuesday, an obscure boxer named Billy Smith took on an equally obscure light heavyweight named Moore. The unusual outcome of this bout contains a moral for all of us. A little more than halfway through the fight, things started going badly for Smith. And in his own words, he's the first to admit it. I get back to my corner and one says do this, one says do that. Well, you can't fight like that. 
for you have to have a a, a plan to fight. I didn't have a plan. Uh, one one fellow in my corner told me to go out and knock him out. And one other fellow says, no, you can't do that to him. You have to be careful because you have to watch him. But we got mixed up somewhere. We didn't, instead of working together, we were fighting each other. And I got mixed up, confused, and after I knocked him down in that sixth round, I missed the knockout. I come back to the corner, and everybody was excited in the corner, and I was getting smelling salts and everything else, too much of everything. And water was getting poured all over me, and I felt just like a, well, I felt, I felt real silly. Well, I went out in the seventh and eighth round. I didn't do any good, so I just, I couldn't. My corner was hollering and screaming this and screaming that. My corner would say, one, two, Billy. And Archie said, yes, come on, one, two. Bang, bang. And he hit me with a one, two. And I said, well, I'm not getting any place like this. And if I don't, if I, if I keep going like this, I'll just ruin everything. So I said, rather than do that, I'll just turn around and walk out and quit. And that's what he did. He walked out of the ring, confused and disgusted. Any resemblance between Smith and we as a nation is not unintentional. Both have been shouted at. Both have had their battle plans argued over. Both at times have been confused and disgusted. Like Smith, if we lower our guard, we shall certainly be hit. But unlike Smith, we cannot get out of the ring. For if we ever try to leave, we'll never be able to come back. Perhaps the best week's suggestion came from the National Arts Foundation. A blank record in jukeboxes for those looking for a nickel's worth of quiet. Slot machine manufacturers announced they were closing up shop. Some hopefully counted on switching over to war production. The New Year's Eve show in Trinidad's prison was a great success. That is, until one of the prisoners playing the role of a policeman failed to show up for the second act. He'd made a fast getaway. The sports writers were unanimous. Notre Dame's football team, the team of the year in 49, was the flop of the year in 1950. New York's Yankee Stadium played second best to New York's Museum of Natural History. More people visited the museum in 1950 than went to the ballpark. The second oldest gorilla in captivity, the famous Bushman, died in Chicago's Lincoln Park Zoo, a heart attack. He was 22. In Bristol, England, the garbage collectors won a long, hard fight. From now on, they can wear soft felt hats. The traditional old black derby is out, too old-fashioned. In Sheffield, England, a man was arrested for the second time in six months on the same charge breaking the same plate glass window of the local grocery store. He said, that window to me is like a red flag to a bull. The people of Birmingham were panicked out of their wits. Someone told someone else the water supply had been poisoned and the rumor got out of hand. In Spokane, Washington, the Dynamite Breakfast Food Company lived up to its name. Its plant exploded. In many cities, the nickel phone call will be a thing of the past. It will take a dime beginning tomorrow to get a number on the coin machines. Wages of non-farm workers went up $5.70 a week this year over last. But the increase actually meant only 51 cents a week more in spendable income. George Bernard Shaw's self-written obituary will be released in two weeks. And in Washington, 85-year-old Adolph Sabbath of Illinois, the dean of the house, a veteran of the days of Champ Clark, Bryan, and Teddy Roosevelt, began his 45th year in the Congress of the United States. Mrs. Sabbath... Feels that I should quit. She felt so six years ago, eight years ago. And it required the President Roosevelt then to tell her that I must run again. I want to please her and I want 
also to do my duty towards my country that I love before above anything else in the world. Anybody could start an argument in Washington. This week, the problem as to whether or not Russia definitely has the A-bomb came up. Republican Senator Brewster of Maine had stated that Carl Compton, the distinguished scientist, had indicated the Russians did not actually have an atomic bomb. Dr. Compton didn't remember having made such a statement. But reporters put the question to Atomic Energy Commissioner Gordon Dean. I haven't seen uh, Dr. Compton's statement. I did see a statement attributed to him. I don't know what he said. Um, Russia does have the bomb. When newsmen asked Mr. Dean how the United States was certain of this, Dean replied, Well, if I told you I knew precisely, then it would mean that uh, uh, we had a spy who was uh, sitting next to Mr. Stalin's uh, uh, each morning at breakfast and and talking the subject over with him. Uh, I don't think I should reveal the existence of that man. General Ike Eisenhower was in Washington this week for a final round of high-level conferences before taking off for his West European command tomorrow. Here is part of what he had to say. I agree that unless every sacrifice made by America is not matched by equal sacrifices, equal sincerity of purpose in the Western European nations, this thing cannot win. I believe that this movement among the Western democracies, in which I now have been assigned a post, is one for the preservation of peace. If it has a belligerent purpose or attitude, no one has expressed that to me, and I would think it would be uh, uh, defeated from the start. Charles Wilson, who gave up a $275,000 a year job as head of General Electric to mobilize the nation's industries at a lean $22,500 a year, said this. Now, admittedly, we may go through uh, uh, a period uh, of scarcity, uh, but I want to make it clear that it's uh, not our intention, and I hope it won't be necessary to maintain uh, an economy of scarcity. Uh, you know, it's been uh, said so often that I presume it uh, will be regarded as trite to repeat that uh, uh, increasing uh, production is one of our most potent weapons uh, uh, with which to fight inflation. And uh, I want to make it crystal clear that we propose to uh, use that weapon to the uh, fullest uh, possible extent. If there was little news in Korea for Dofoots to rejoice about, there was certainly good news for them from Cincinnati. This is Mrs. J.F. Brammer speaking as president of the Cincinnati and Hamilton County chapter of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Ohio is the first state to uh, send the juices over. Ohio is the crusade state of the WCTU. We will continue to, to send the fruit juices. The boys of the 8th Army heard about the shipments of grapefruit and pineapple juice that were coming their way. They thanked the ladies for them. And they made only one slight suggestion. Mrs. Brammer of the WCTU reads the message she received from Korea. The other day, a letter was received from uh, Korea reading, uh, Dear ladies of the WCTU, it said, We, the men of the 76th ECB, Engineers Combat Battalion, really do appreciate the fruit juices you are sending over here in place of beer. It doesn't quite take the place of beer, but you can get a better buzz on with it. 
We just add a little yeast and sugar to it. Heat it on the stove and get some of the finest wine ever brewed. As yeast and sugar are scarce over here, we would appreciate it very much if you would send some with the next shipment. Thank you very much, and keep the juices coming our way. You're about to hear the voices of Walter Winchell and Joseph Alsop. Both are newspaper men, both widely read. And Mr. Winchell is perhaps the most listened to news broadcaster on the air. They are both quoted here now because columns of theirs this week reached millions of their own readers and listeners and very few of each other's. They represent two different shades of United States thinking. First, Walter Winchell as broadcast over the ABC network and printed by the New York Mirror the next day. Mr. and Mrs. United States, the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, that in the secret history of the world, our final power was never greater and our national honor was never brighter. The fact is, that our secret weapons are so powerful that out of common humanity, we will not use them except in extreme necessity. Our nation can defeat any other nation or combination of nations in the world if it comes to a matter of survival. We not only can defeat the communists as a nation, we can obliterate the Russians as a people. In our secret arsenals, we have enough deadly weapons to remove every Russian city of over 100,000 population from the map. In easy striking distance of our foreign bases, we can vaporize 50 million Russians in one mass bombing. We could incinerate the Kremlin faster than we could free Korea. But of the 50 million Russians, we could kill at will. 25 million would be children. And it is not in the tradition of American arms to attack babies. Mr. Joseph Alsop, together with his brother Stuart, writes a syndicated column that appears in the New York Herald Tribune and many other papers throughout the country. He began one column by paying his respects to his dateline, Washington, D.C. This squalid city currently resembles nothing so much as a drunken beach picnic, continuing in full course, its members reveling, quarreling, gormandizing, and making fools of themselves long after the hurricane warning has been given. And then Mr. Alsop proceeded to discuss the gravity of the world situation as he sees it. If it were not for the threat of Chinese invasion of Indochina, the whole Southeast Asiatic picture would now be hopeful and improving. Even in Indochina itself, there has been an important response since the French have at last made the concessions to native nationalism that should have been made three years ago. But all this hopeful process will be halted and reversed by the new step in the Kremlin's planned program of world aggression. And after Asia will come Europe. And then, perhaps following a pause while the storm gathers new force, the tidal wave will engulf this hemisphere. You can't, you can't make a livelihood on three days, one week, and four days the next week. Four days? As a union official, I'm just telling you that. As a, as a Not all the great national debates are conducted in the forum of the U.S. Congress or on the editorial pages of the country's newspapers. Some of the most heated words, best logic and often as not grotesque misstatements of fact, 
can be heard on your own street corner. And the 20th century versions of the Clays, Lincolns, and Douglases are those pundits without portfolio or a place to park their taxicab. Traffic control in our large American cities has become a major problem for the private car owner as well as the taxicab driver. Three of the worst trouble spots are New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. We have recorded some rather divergent opinions of a few license holders in these cities. And as on the highway, the cab drivers seem to dominate the conversation. I think the greatest problem in the city of Chicago is jaywalking, which, uh, in my opinion, is about the worst thing anybody can do. Double parking, for one thing, uh, you can't squeeze through and you're coming east of uh, west, uh, pa- cars are parked, the park caddy corner, they're not in close to the curb. And I really think that's a contributing factor to the uh, bottlenecks in the city of New York. Well, having a cab in Los Angeles is really rough. It's really rough, believe me. Well, the worst spots in the city is the garment district. Well, if a truck ever pulls in, has got to drop off any packages or make a delivery there, you got time to crochet a sweater. Well, traffic moves much faster in L.A. than it does in Chicago. Waited about uh, half a minute or so and still didn't move. It was a woman driver. So I blew the horn. She still didn't move. I blew the horn again. She didn't move. Finally, she got off the seat. She said, what are you blowing your horn for? I said, look, lady, you want me to send you a telegram? A telegraph runner? She blew on top and I blew my heart. I believe that when a woman puts her hand outside of the open window, the only thing you can be sure of is that the window is open. Well, most of all, the police department, they're having a conversation on the street with somebody else instead of directing traffic. And if they were taking care of their business the way they should, traffic wouldn't be so bad. There's enough crazy drivers in the city of New York to aggravate anybody. Refuse to be aggravated. With newspapers and magazines, you can turn the pages of yesterday's editions and even last year's or the last decades and bring yesterday's issues and today's sharply into focus. We think that radio can do the same thing with sounds. Before we listen to the Republicans of the last 30 days, we should like to turn back in sound to Governor Dewey just after Harry Truman upset him in the 1948 elections. The Republican Party is split wide open. It's been split wide open for years. But we've been busy trying to gloss it over. We've tried to deny it to ourselves and to conceal it. That doesn't work. I am living evidence that it doesn't work. The Republican Party has not won a presidential election since Mr. Hoover defeated Al Smith in 1928. Since that time, Hoover, Landon, Wilkie, and Dewey have gone down to defeat at the hands of the Democrats. Although they did not win the 1950 elections, the Republicans made great gains and right now stand an even chance of winning in 1952. Just the other day, a reporter asked Republican Senator Wherry if he wanted to impeach Mr. Truman. Let me ask you this, then. Do you think uh, Mr. Truman should resign? Well, uh, we'll take care of that in 1952. (laughs) In the 18 months from this date, until the Republicans go to Philadelphia or wherever they choose for their convention, in those 18 months... The main issue in American statesmanship and politics is going to be foreign policy. If the Republicans are going to win in 1952, they will need the support and belief of the American voters on foreign policy. The Republican leaders claim that there is no unity in the administration's affairs of state. But the biggest lack of unity is within the GOP itself, where, since the Korean disaster of last month, a rift has developed which may eventually split the party wide open. To date, the major Republican debate 
has been in the voices of ex-president Hoover, Senator Taft, and Senator Wherry on one side, and Governor Dewey, John Foster Dulles, and Wayne Morse on the other. Let's listen to what they said. First, Mr. Hoover on December 20th. First, the foundation of our national policies must be to preserve for the world this Western Hemisphere Gibraltar of Western civilization. Second, we can, without any measure of a doubt, with our own air and naval forces, hold the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans with one frontier on Britain if she wishes to cooperate, and the other on Japan, Formosa, and the Philippines. John Foster Dulles, in a speech which he stated was not made in answer to Mr. Hoover, said this about the Gibraltar concept. You can plan on paper what it seems ought to be an impregnable defense. A China wall, a Maginot line, a rock of Gibraltar, an Atlantic and Pacific moat. But the mood, the mood that plans such a defense carries within itself the seeds of its own collapse. A defense that accepts encirclement quickly decomposes. That has been proved a thousand times. A United States that could be an inactive spectator while the barbarians overran and desecrated the cradle of our Christian civilization would not be the kind of a United States which could defend itself. Mr. Herbert Hoover on Europe. Therefore, to warrant our further aid, they should show that they have spiritual strength and unity to avail themselves of their own resources. But it must be far more than pacts and conferences and paper promises and declarations. Today, it must express itself in organized and equipped combat divisions of such huge numbers as would erect a sure dam against this red flood. And that before we land another man or another dollar on their shores. Otherwise, we shall be inviting another Korea and that will be a calamity to Europe as well as to us. Our policy in this quarter of the world should be confined to a period of watchful waiting without ground military action. Governor Dewey, in what many have called the best speech of his career. By the swift acceleration of the draft, the United States Army should be brought to a strength of not less than 100 divisions in being. At the earliest possible moment, the Air Force should be brought to at least 80 groups. The United States Navy should be taken out of mothballs and recommissioned without delay. We can beat Russia five to one in production, but we can't save our freedom with automobiles or washing machines. The latest contribution to this fierce debate came this afternoon when Senator Taft made a 10,000-word speech to the Senate on his foreign policy views. For one hour and ten minutes, he offered his views. Without authority, the president involved us in the Korean War. Without authority, he apparently is now adopting a similar policy in Europe. We may have been sucked into the Korean War by the Russians. The United Nations Charter was violated when the United States forced action on the majority. The senator from Ohio said he doesn't want to abandon Europe, but the Atlantic Pact was a tremendous mistake, the greatest possible incitement to war. We have no business prodding the Europeans into a great military program. We have no business sending a big army over there. What we should do, says Taft of Ohio, is build a very strong air and sea force, make an alliance with a selected half-dozen countries, protect friendly island countries like Japan, the Philippines, Australia, Britain, and the others. If Russia realizes we have the power, 
their purpose for military aggression may well wither. The senator sees no conclusive evidence that Russia wants war. He feels the Truman administration has brought us to danger and disaster, pushed us nearer to a general war, threatened us with economic collapse because of big defense expenditures. As usual, there is disagreement between the senator from Ohio and the governor of New York. Unless we're going to shrink within our own borders and wait to be conquered by a communist world, we must boldly make decisions that will keep friends for our cause both in Europe and in Asia. Again, former President Hoover. We Americans alone, with our sea and air power, can so control the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans that there can be no possible invasion of the Western Hemisphere by communist armies. They can no more reach Washington in force than we can reach Moscow. Aside from the Hoover-Wary-Taft faction and the Dewey-Dulles wing, there is also a group of Republicans trying to remain out of the ranks of the conservatives and non-interventionists. Among them, Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts, Margaret Chase Smith of Maine, and Wayne Morse of Oregon, who speaks now. I have yet to discuss this matter with the first American military expert who tells me that we would be safe to adopt the isolationist philosophy that is coming to sweep the Republican Party. As far as my party is concerned in the 82nd Congress, we better have it out now, before 1952. Because if my party goes isolationist in the 82nd Congress... I have no doubt as to what the verdict of the American people will be in 1952. It will be anti-Republican. And I'm frank to say that if my party adopts an isolationist foreign policy and fails to recognize that our front line of defense now is Europe, fails to recognize that with the loss of Europe we will jeopardize the security of our, of our own country, if my party follows that course of action, it should be defeated as I'm sure it will be defeated in 1952. We have tried to bring you a brief version of the debate within the Republican Party, to reflect it rather than to participate in it. There are dangers in editing a man's voice, but we have tried to give you honest echoes of the principal spokesman in this controversy. One powerful, persuasive voice is missing, that of Senator Arthur Vandenberg, the senior senator from Michigan, who is ill in Grand Rapids, and who may not be able to resume his seat in the Senate. During the period from 1946 to 48, it is probably true that the administration could not have carried forward any foreign policy without the active aid and participation of Senator Vandenberg. He was disposed to consider national rather than political destiny. Men of goodwill of both parties may well join in the hope that the counsel and courage of Arthur Vandenberg will again be available to his fellow countrymen. We do not know precisely the position he would take in this current controversy. But he is a steadfast man, slow to anger, calm in crises. We thought it appropriate to conclude this examination of Republican foreign policy with a brief excerpt from one of Senator Vandenberg's last speeches, delivered at Ann Arbor, Michigan, just about a year ago. When liberty under law becomes a universal concept, when it totally substitutes for the ugly mandates of jungle force, there will be at long last dependable peace for free men in a free world. When peace responds to international justice instead of international politics and international force, durable peace will bless the earth. 
That is our common overriding aim in the United Nations, which, despite all obstacles, is still the world's best final hope for the evolution of peace, justice, and security. You have been listening to Hear It Now, first week, 1951, presented by the Columbia Network tonight and every week at this time in the interest of a better informed America. All the sounds and voices were real and were recorded on the scene of History in the Making. Hear It Now is edited and produced by Edward R. Morrow and Fred W. Friendly, and a CBS staff which includes Jesse Zausner, John Aaron, and Joe Wershber. The Korean reports were gathered by CBS correspondents George Herman and John Jefferson in the field. Other portions of Hear It Now originated in New York City and at WTOP Washington, WKRC Cincinnati, WBBM Chicago, KNX, Los Angeles, KCBS, San Francisco, WKZO, Kalamazoo, KOIN, Portland, Oregon, WJR, Detroit, KMBC, Kansas City, WEEI, Boston, and a radio station somewhere in Texas. Special acknowledgement is made to the British Broadcasting Corporation and United Nations Radio. Edward R. Morrow can be heard each weekday evening at 7.45 Eastern Standard Time over most of these same CBS stations. This is Olin Tai speaking. It's amazing the things habit can do for one. We get dressed every morning without thinking about it at all. We can walk down the street, get on a bus, and find ourselves at work without having paid much conscious attention to the process at all. Habit does it. Habit helps us accomplish things with half the effort, and often in half the time. That's why it's important to get that business of saving over into the habit category. And the easiest way to do that is to start saving by the system that makes it a habit automatically. Sign up to buy United States savings bonds by either the payroll savings plan or the bond-a-month plan. 
And there's your habit all set and ready to go. Regularly, each week or each month, you'll be setting aside money for a bond or buying one without any thought, without any effort. It's a good habit. And remember, a dollar free for every three. Double inducement to buy bonds now. This is CBS, the star's address, the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs> 